Welcome everybody to another episode of Mentally Unscripted. This is Paul. I'm here with Scott. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm doing really good. Hopefully we uh, got the audio issues taken care of and people can actually hear me speak now. Yes, yes. We, we had some great feedback um, from from our audience telling us that uh, they, they love the conversation and they thought we could do a better job with better miking. So we, we've listened, we've interpreted what you said, and we are attempting to do better. So, uh, so hang with us, um, and, and let us know if, if this is, a uh, this is better for you. So yeah. we, we got to get of our hordes of fans what they want. That's, that's right. <laughs> All right. The, the millions of people out there waiting for this podcast to, to, yeah. to come to their ears. Of course, they may end up regretting it when they can actually hear us, but you know, Hey, <laughs> yeah, we'll yeah. take that risk. Well, maybe they'll enjoy the voices and not, not what we're saying. I don't know. Right. <laughs> um, well, well, today we're, we're talking about something that's very timely. Uh, we're going to be talking about internet censorship. And I think this all came to a head after uh, the, I, I believe it was January 6th, after the storming of the Capitol, when uh, the President of the United States, Donald Trump, uh, was banned from from Twitter and then a host of other services like Facebook and, and many of the other social media. And I think it, it created both uh, euphoria for some and angst for others. And so Scott and I wanted to take some time and, and explore this topic and, and avoid the sort of knee jerk reaction that happens in the heat of the moment and talk about a couple of ways to take apart, unpack the topic of censorship on the internet. So we're going to get started with that. But before we do, Hey, we're, we're growing this co- podcast and we want to bring you along for the journey. So go to mentallyunscripted.com, sign up for the, for the newsletter, um, check out the podcast there. You can also check us out on any, anywhere else where you can find podcasts. If that's going to be on uh, Spotify or if that's on Apple, we're up there. So, so find us, download us, uh, hit the like and subscribe button. We, we'd love for you to come along on these journeys. So, so Scott, uh, Maybe, maybe we'll just start with the initial reaction that you had when you saw that uh, the, the president was taken off of Twitter. It was a permanent ban. Was, that was the messaging that we had. And then we also saw uh, very, very soon after a permanent ban from Facebook, I believe. So what was your initial reaction? Uh, I wasn't in the least bit surprised. Uh, I think we've been moving in this direction for a long time. Uh, you know, he's... President Trump's certainly not the first person to get kicked off. Um, I, you know, what was it back in 2017 when Facebook did that big purge of a lot of uh, a lot of the pages that they thought were I, I can't remember exactly why, but they thought were fomenting some sort of like anti-U.S. propaganda or something. Fake news, I think, was what they were calling it. Um, so it, it's been ramping up over the years. And I think it's like you said, it's it's hitting ahead now. And I think I think we're going to be at this crest for a while. Yeah. Well, it, we're I, I guess we had seen them. And I, by them, just the, the social media platforms take various steps. As you said, they've, they've sort of, uh, they've shadow banned. We, we've heard discussions about shadow banning, um, obviously deleting accounts. Uh, there's been questions about permanent bans, semi-permanent bans. But it, I don't think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not sure we had seen someone of, of such a high profile, the president of a country, a leader of a country, be banned from one of those platforms. 
Is that is that consistent with your memory? Right. Yeah, no one that big. I think um, the biggest name we had heard prior to this was Alex Jones. And um, I think the big news about Alex Jones was just the coordinated uh, effort across the different platforms when they banned him. Uh, you know, it, Donald Trump, it, it's interesting because, you know, here he's the most powerful man in the world, the leader of the free market or leader of the free world, excuse me. And he's using Twitter as a platform to communicate with the people, which I know he got a lot of flack early on for doing that. Mm -hmm. But I I thought that was great. I mean, growing up, I never thought that the president would be right on the other end of an app on a phone. Well, I never (laughs) thought there would be an app on a phone, but (laughs) um, I never thought that I would, I would have such close contact to the president of the United States. Um, You you know, so, you know, I get that there's the, there's a requirement that you use it responsibly, but I think it's great when a politician is so accessible. Um, So to me, it's just really, it's really shocking that a platform would go that far. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think this, this demonstrates just the, dislike that that a lot of these left-leaning companies have for uh, president trump um and it's yeah. it, it you know and it's concerning i mean the guy you know he still has something and when he speaks it still means something whether you agree with it or not um so he, he, people need to be able to hear what he's saying uh you know which brings us to you know the next question is like well just being banned off of one or two platforms isn't really silencing him so you know how far does this does this censorship from twitter and facebook how much does it really impact him and that's that's a big topic for debate mm-hmm. yeah i i don't know sometimes i have a often actually i have a uh, an emotional response which takes a while to process and trying to understand exactly what i'm feeling and at the time i i in the chaos of everything that was happening i i thought well this is surprising but also not that at least if i just take one of the platforms in isolation uh, given some of the activity they had done where they're they're trying to to ban certain posts or, or down posts they're adding a lot of um, messaging around well this is disputed and then um even a few years ago, in an interview between Jack Dorsey and, and Joe Rogan, he talked about this idea of harm, uh, that their entire modus operandi was when we have to think about posting and what's out there, we're going to always put it in, in the context, will this cause harm, which gives you a pretext for saying this person after the events of, of the, the capital this person clearly is causing harm. Therefore, we can act in this way. Um, but it, it, it obviously opens up a, a much wider discussion around what is censorship? Should it be allowed? How, what's going to happen if it's coordinated in the, in the space of a digital era where the speech, as you said, it's not a, we're getting direct access or feed to an individual and it gives us Perhaps insight into how they're thinking can also go the opposite way. It can just be pure propaganda. But it, it gives us access in a way we've never had that we wouldn't have without the digital realm. And so it, it, it begs other questions. So 
So why, why don't we start there? Because uh, I, I know we did some some reading up here, and I think we got some really interesting nuggets to to uh, unearth. But you know, when we talk about censorship of of speech, and we're we're in the United States, so the United States is is commonly said to have some of the most liberal um, speech laws on the books, right? Um, and and I and I, I think that stands up pretty well. In fact, I. I I'd be curious to know if there's any other countries in the world that have more liberal speech laws uh, than us. But when you think about censorship of speech, um, how what, what do you think is the first principle for actually exploring that? I mean, to me, the first principle when we're talking about censorship is that we should start from a default position of you're allowed to say whatever you want. And I think, you know, when you read the First Amendment, that that certainly seems to be the basis is that uh, people should be able to speak, speak freely. They should be able to speak their mind and share their opinions without uh, a fear of retaliation from the government. Um, and that's, this is an important thing to remember is that technically only the government, the federal government um, is bound by the first amendment. And then through the 14th amendment, the state and local governments are also bound by the first amendment. Um, so w- when we're talking about first amendment, uh, you know, Twitter and Facebook, they're not violating the first amendment when they ban somebody or when they censor speech. Mm-hmm. So remember that. So only the governments, federal, state, and local can, can technically violate the first amendment. Now that doesn't mean that Facebook and Twitter and the other social media platforms aren't engaging in censorship, uh, which they are doing, but the difference is that they can do it legally because they're not a government actor. Um, right. So, uh, let me, you know, I, I was kind of curious to, to find kind of like exactly what, uh, the definition of censorship is. So I went out to the ACLU website and here's the definition I found. It's censorship is the suppression of words, images, or ideas that are offensive happens whenever some people succeed in imposing their personal, political, or moral values on others. Censorship can be carried out by the government as well as private pressure groups. So according to this definition, you know, if you find something offensive, and they used offensive in quotes here, so it tells me it's kind of a broad definition, uh, they're saying that you can censor that speech or, or when you restrict the speech because it's offensive, that's censorship. And I know that's the justification that gets used in a lot of these cases, uh, is that the speech is offensive. So, you know, if we start off with the first principle that you should be allowed to say whatever you want, then we, we can kind of, uh, refine that a bit and say, well, as long as it's not offensive. Um, and by offensive, we consider inciting violence, I guess, to be included in inoffensive. Um, mm. And that's kind of been the law in the U.S. for a long time, or at least been the standard, is that you can say whatever you want as long as your speech is not putting someone else in danger. So right. you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater, right? That would be, um, that would be against the law. Uh, I think the problem here is, the, the, like I said, the definition of offensive and the, these definitions of inciting violence, they're not set in stone and they can be highly subjective. So it's who gets to decide what's offensive and who gets to decide um, how to 
how to go about censoring that. And yeah. I think that's where we're really running into the problem. Um, so well, if, if I were you, to, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you also highlight uh, a very critical aspect of the discussion in that the, the laws as they're defined, as you describe them, are about the government imposing its its own views of, of expression on the individual. And the laws are set up so that the individual can basically stand up to the government and not be censored, right? Right. Um, w- within the bounds of not creating um, harm to others, right? Or, or you know, the, the, the fire, shouting fire in a crowded movie theater. It does not extend to the to private enterprise. And what's interesting about our current situation is that the technology has become a peer-to-peer communication such that a, a representative of the government, be it the president of the United States or someone of a department that's communicating on Twitter, there is a question of what communication are they doing if they're shouting down or, or preventing others from speaking. So if Donald Trump says, um, or Biden now was to use that communication channel and tell people they're not allowed to say things, is, and, and that's, that's a peer-to-peer communication, does that, does that change the nature, right? Is, is, is now a government official impeding on speech of people if they're, if they're going to be dictating some of that? And it, again, it's a problem that doesn't exist, I don't believe, in, until you start to have these digital platforms um, that just change the way our communication works, right? Where you can you now, how, however millions of people you have following you, you can speak to them with a single, single message. Yes, you had that on TV, but everyone had to be in front of that TV at the right time in which you were broadcasting it. Um, or they have to turn it on. It, it's just, it's a lot simpler now with, with the era of smart devices and apps. So it, it, it changes that dynamic. But it's, it's important to note that, again, it's private companies are not held to the same standard. Right. And, and that's where we're going to get to asking the question, are, are we going to need to treat them with the same standard? Should they be treated with the right. same standard? Yeah. And one thing you brought up that, uh, that was interesting is, you, you know, there, a few years ago, there was a Supreme Court case, and I do happen to have the case here. Um, it was the Knight First Amendment Institute um, versus Donald Trump um, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I guess they were co-defendants. So in that case, essentially, the Supreme Court ruled that Donald Trump cannot restrict who who receives his his tweets. Okay, because hmm. the idea is that the president is speaking in a public forum and that everyone um, has the right to hear what he's saying now. It, but it's not a two way street. Right. So Twitter, as the private company, can restrict Donald Trump from speaking altogether. But mm-hmm. Donald Trump cannot respect. Essentially, I think it was like he can't block people from receiving his tweets. Um so that's that's an interesting um, little nuance to keep in mind, okay, is that the politicians can't block who receives their information, but the platform itself can block the politician. Uh, yeah. And uh, the second thing I think you, you brought up a great point is that, you know, speech, we've talked before about, 
you kind of have to measure things by how big the stakes are. Well, because of the internet and the, the broad reach of, of the communications that we have now, the stakes are a lot higher. And, and so we do, do we have to incorporate that into our definitions of offensive and inciting violence? Um, right. you know, if Paul and I, if, if, if we're just talking to each other and I say, you know, let's go march on the Capitol to protest this new law, right? You know me well enough to know that I'm not advocating that we go, that we be violent, right? I'm just mm-hmm. advocating that we go down there and make our voices heard. But if I go right. online and I start yelling, Hey, let's march on the Capitol. And then some folks go down there and they get violent. Then did, was I inciting that violence? It, you right. know, it, it's a it's a really difficult question, um, and and are are we going to get to a point where, <laughs> you know, when we call for people to go protest, do we have to use the word peaceful? You know, do we have to say make this yeah. a peaceful protest in order to protect ourselves legally? You know, how is that going to work? You know, do you have to actually use the words violence or you know, and and the the world right now, right? There's there's so many different ways that we can express ourselves, and so many different words that what you interpret as being a call to violence, somebody else may not interpret as being a call to violence. Yeah, you know, I, I listened to a conversation with Steven Pinker uh, several years ago, in which he was discussing the idea that we have ideas in our mind that are playing out and, and they're in our interpretation of the world. And they can be around as, as simple things as, as, you know, making breakfast and, and what, I, what I'm going to eat for breakfast or the clothing I'm going to put on, but it can be more significant about your, your morality, uh, your definition of right and wrong. And much of that processing occurs when we actually speak it out loud. And so if everything is occurring in your mind, you're, you're, you're only doing part of the processing, right? So it, uh, let's say there's something in your mind that's offensive that you, um, you, you think in your head, well, that, that seems normal and right. Uh, and then you start to speak it out loud and then it, it comes into combat with those around you who, who, per, who maybe push back on the idea. They, they ask questions about the idea, but the processing starts to change. So there's a there's a net positive to allowing people to speak their mind with, uh, in many ways, offensive speech because it allows without it we don't give them a forum for processing. We're only doing some percentage of the processing. Now that doesn't mean that you're gonna if it's something that a, a large group of people feel is offensive doesn't mean that you're gonna reach that point that tipping point where everyone where everyone just now agrees. Well, we we can no longer say that. Um, but it's, it's, it's a key, it's a key aspect of human processing or, or what we need to do in order to, for us to, to improve our thinking, uh, is, is one, one point. The second point it, that really I struggle with is the, the concept of offensive. It's so difficult to nail down. It, you know, if you, you travel to different cultures, um, they use different hands to eat. Right. Because one hand is considered solid by, by all the other activities that you have to do. Um, there's there's ways in which you greet people uh, where, you know, now now post COVID, no one's going to want to shake hands. So is, is someone c- coming up to you and now wants to shake your hand and or give you a hug? Are people going to consider that offensive? So, so the 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 boundary lines are constantly in flux and even language 
is which is not controlled by any minister or any government. It's the most decentralized processor and reflection of our deprocessing or decentralized processing. It's always changing. So how do you identify offensive speech and codify it? It's very difficult. It just is. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, we, we often talk about certain terms being used in, in a racist context. You know, the, the N word is a great example. Um, it's, it's a word I've always found extremely offensive in my home. It was, it was always treated as extremely offensive. It was never said. And contextually, the first time I heard it in, in music, I'm thinking to myself, well, this is, this is wrong. Why, why are we using this language? Why are we still using this language? I had a conversation with a professor in, in college about it. Uh, we were watching a movie by Spike Lee and, uh, she, she was, she was an African American and she, I, I went to her in office hours and said, I don't understand the use of this language. And she, she did a phenomenal job of breaking it down about context of owning this language. She didn't like the word. She thought it was offensive. She would prefer not to hear it. Spike Lee wanted to use it for uh, for effect and drama. Well, how do how do we how do we treat that language? Should that be banned? Should should Spike Lee not be allowed to use language that he finds pointed for his art? Um, if someone repeats a line from a movie script that they found very pertinent, are they allowed to express that? Uh, even though it's it's offensive language, right? It, so th- the boundaries are, are very difficult to define. They're easier to negotiate person to person. They're very difficult to define on a systematic level. And um, I mean, that's just something I have. So I mean, when it comes to censorship, bringing this, at least in my mind, full, full circle, you should always be erring on the side of more, not less, in terms of allowing people to express themselves. Because it is so difficult to find that bright line that it's going to allow us to say, no, that's that's definitely offensive. Everyone agrees that's offensive. We can't do that versus the stuff that's, you know, 99% of things, which which probably fit somewhere far away from that bright line. Yeah. It, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that if everyone agrees that something's offensive, then you, you really won't need to legislate it because most people won't do it. Um, the, the problem comes when there's something that some segment of the population finds offensive that another segment of the population doesn't. And, you know, when we get back to first principles here, I just keep going back to the idea that if you don't want to be offended, the responsibility is on you to try to avoid that stuff. The responsibility is not on everyone else in the world to try to avoid offending you. Um, Because like you said, I don't know what's offensive to to the person who's standing next to me in the checkout line at the grocery store. I don't know what's offensive to the person who's, you know, reading a tweet that I sent. All I can do is use my best judgment. And if I do something that's offensive to you, then, you know, you can you can stop following me. You can stop listening to me. You can talk to me and say, hey, listen, you know, and where I grew up, what that that's offensive. And here's why. Um, but to just outright demand the censorship of someone because of their offensive content, it's, it, you're essentially, it's essentially entitlement. I mean, you're just demanding that everyone else conform to your idea of what's 
offensive and you're demanding that everyone else make the world a more hospitable place for you when really the responsibility on you is to make the it's the responsibility is on you to make the world a hospitable place for you and if that means yeah. that you're occasionally exposed to some offensive stuff um, that you would rather avoid well i mean I, i'm sorry but life life has adversity. I mean, you're not going, yeah, yeah, that's right. you know, you just have to deal with it. You know, when you get up in the morning, there's always the chance you're going to slip on a banana peel and crack your head on the sidewalk. You know, there's always the chance that something's going to happen. So there's just some, some inherent risks in life. Um, so you need to learn how to deal with that. And, and I'm not yeah. trying to sound harsh. I'm just trying to say that it's much easier for you to take the responsibility than for you to sit back and expect everyone else to take the responsibility for you. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think that is the right principle under which to act. Now, I think, I think someone listening to this could push back and say, and, and I think you addressed it, but just to kind of make a fine point on it, they said, well, wait a second. I mean, do we want people going around, and being accepting of, of Nazi type of mentality of this idea that there's there's different races and stratification we can we can agree that some races is superior to others or uh, a misogynistic type of way so you know one gender is is superior to others and I think there's a cultural element to it that that is completely diminished when you say that. Uh, that is both positive and negative or can have positive and negative effects. As you said, if, if most society agrees that it's, it's improper, uh, the culture, uh, puts a cost on acting outside of those norms. And, and I know we've talked about that on this podcast that that is a huge incentive that people don't want to be cast out of a society. Uh, they lose access to, uh, not only resources that they need to survive, but also the the emotional attachment that actually creates life's meaning in many ways. And so there, there's a there's a desire to stay within the culture, and and so it, when the culture actually puts those costs in, it could be more flexible in some ways than a than a government which which is creating legislation uh, based on on term cycles. It can also be the opposite. I mean, you you have growing up. I recall. A lot of frustration with people that would be left of center with the censorship that came from the right, which was more of a, a what I would call a puritanical religious based ideology of here's language that we can censor out and sexuality. And so that that created frustration. And, you know, there were labels on CDs or cassettes or whatever we were buying saying this has offensive language in it. Okay. I mean, I guess it's okay to tell people as long as you're not actually preventing it. But I mean, there were other people saying, we don't even want this music to be produced. So, uh, they lost. And I think that's a good thing. Um, that they, that they lost the, the, the battle to prevent that kind of speech from being out there in, in the, in the open. Uh, I, I would point to people and say, listen, you fought the culture and, and you won. This is a good thing. That is the right place. That's the battleground area to fight it. And, uh, you know, what we see today, um, which, you know, the cancel culture aspect of it, language and being able to pull in all your history, I think is, is getting away from that. But, um, so, so, so far we've, we've kind of said, listen, censorship exists. You've got government versus individual. You got private company versus individual. The private companies don't have to be held to the same standard, not by law. And that's been, 
perhaps fine for decades um, and decades. You know, our Bill of Rights is held up rather nicely in the physical world, but now we're in the digital world. Things are different, and we just we we highlighted some of those differences. So I, I know in researching this, we started talking about does does Twitter or social media platforms present a unique difference that we have to think about differently? So you know, when we think about how to look at speech from these platforms in, in, you know, 2021, what are your thoughts on having to regulate from a speech perspective? Yeah. So as it stands now, like we said, the social media companies, Twitter's, Facebook's, et cetera, et cetera, are considered private entities. Uh, so uh, they're free to censor how and what they like. Um, the, the most recent, thing that I could find is a 2019 Supreme Court case um, addressing this issue. Now, this wasn't uh, it wasn't a social media company. It was a it was a nonprofit company that was operating a public access channel um, on behalf of New York City. Um, And the the channel tried to censor or did censor some uh, some of the folks who were on the channel and they sued claiming that because the channel was being operated on behalf of the New York city, that it was a violation of the first amendment. And the court mm. ruled um, five to four that the um, nonprofit was not a state actor and therefore not bound by the first amendment. Um, and the, so, you know, a five, four ruling, that means, you know, five people ruled in favor of this opinion, four people were against it. So it was pretty close. Uh, the court was essentially split and the dissent, uh, their basic argument was that the terms of the contract under which the nonprofit was operating, um, clearly made it a state actor. And I'm not exactly sure what the exact terms were that they were referring to. I didn't get that deep into the research. Um, but the whole point is, is that in this case where you have a public company operating, or you have a private company operating a public forum for the state, uh, even that is not enough to take that private company and turn it into a state actor. So presumably Hmm. uh, this would get extended to social media companies as well. um, If this were to ever come up. So if uh, for example, uh, Twitter were acting under contract with the government for some reason, um, it it wouldn't be enough. That contract wouldn't be enough to cause them to become a state actor and uh, they would become subject to the first amendment. So th- hmm. that's where we're at now, as far as the First Amendment goes. Um, yeah. From a pure legal perspective. From a purely legal perspective. Now, what, uh, look, look, one thing I learned in was, lo- oh, I was just going to say one thing I learned in law school is that the Supreme Court are master wordsmiths and they are masters at twisting logic. <laughs> so <laughs> they can pretty yep. much come up with an opinion that would say like something that you're doing is perfectly legal, but your neighbor who's doing the exact same thing is illegal for some reason. So they could always find a way to distinguish a social media case from this public access channel case. Um, but without anything else to go on, this is where we appear to be. Um, so the, the yeah. question really comes up is like, if we're talking about first amendment, what, what do we have to do? what would we have, how far would we have to go to show that the platform is actually a state actor? Uh, and that's just not clear right now. I know, um, uh, 
you know, Facebook had that issue. Uh, we mentioned it earlier where they, they banned all these, uh, fake news websites. Um, again, I think it was 2017. Um, and they did that. Facebook did that with the assistance of the Atlantic Council, um, which is a, a pro war, pro NATO think tank that is, uh, you know, partially, it, it's partially funded by, um, the U.S. military. So it's getting mm-hmm. money from the government, you know, so, you know, is that enough to cause Facebook to be considered a state actor? Are they banning these, were they banning these, these pages, um, in order to promote some sort of a, a, a government sanctioned narrative and should it matter? And, and that's really the question. Well, yeah. So, I mean, that's, I, I didn't realize all those details. I, I think that's amazing context. What do you think, just your own opinion on whether or not that ruling uh, makes sense that, if I if, if I can kind of put it into non-legalese layman terms that a contractor for the government doesn't need to be held to the same standards as the government, even though they may be acting on behalf of the government. And so they can make a decision like if again, if in some ways, you know, Biden goes on Twitter, right? Yes, the way that these these tools work is that there is no contract. There's a service agreement. Uh, but he is, in fact, using using the platform. So, if he's silencing people on there, right? Which which I think you just said that the previous case said, well, you can't do that. But then Twitter does it on his behalf uh, because let's just say I'll, I'll use the example of people coming back to him and saying, listen, we don't believe in climate change, so we're going to respond to every time you put out something about improving the environment with language, you know, with tweets, and he he. he we're going to start blocking those. It seems to me that that nexus, that that connection between the two is difficult to sever. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it, and it wasn't clear like in, in the Supreme court case I, I referenced earlier uh, with Donald Trump, it, it was talking about Donald Trump's blocking of people. Now it's not clear if Twitter would be able to block people on behalf of um the politician uh, in your example, Joe Biden and and w- would Twitter just have to monitor Biden's account and proactively do that? Or would it be okay if they were responding to a request from the Biden administration to please block these people? Uh, it's, you know, like I said, there, there, sometimes there can be a lot of nuance to these cases and sometimes they can yeah. be really easy to distinguish from each other. I would suspect well- that, if Biden were to request Twitter ban or block someone that that would essentially be the same, be looked at as being the same thing as Biden actually blocking the folks himself. Right. Well, here's an example that just came up. So there was a, a press briefing, the new uh, press secretary was sharing some, some piece of information. It went on to YouTube, that clip went onto YouTube and it had, um, let's just say 10,000 downvotes uh, versus 1,000 upvotes. So it was, it was ratioed hard. And someone showed that those, all those ratio, that ratio went away. Basically, they, they deleted some of the downvotes and they gave some upvotes. Now, it's possible that organically that happened. It's also unknown if that actually happened. And their, their point was, well, they're, they're, they're inflating the, 
they're inflating the positivity of these remarks. So even though, again, private company uh, operating under its own uh, value structure is giving cover to a to the government, it, based on the, the values of the people that are in charge and promoting a message. Um, now, I, I guess you know you could say, well, that's that's different because that's not preventing speech. Uh, but it does point to the incentives. And so it's it's possible that, again, would they just delete comments from people that would dis- that were dissenting? And then is that considered part of uh, government deleting comments or, or trying to censor out ideas that they disagree with? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And I think I'm going to stick with what I was saying earlier. I think if the platform is doing it on their own without – um, any intervention from the government officials, then they would be perfectly. It would they could legitimately do that. Uh, yeah. I think this is where you know again the you have to take personal responsibility, right? If you know that YouTube has a history of doing this, um, then start looking other places for your your content if you can. I, I know that. This idea of the, these monopolies and these these tech companies kind of becoming the de facto forums is an issue, um, but there are still alternatives out there. Uh, and, you know, I guess the one thing, too, is, like, you know, how much does it really matter if YouTube, you know, changes downvotes into upvotes, you know, and... Mm-hmm. And how much does it matter? I mean, I don't know. I think most of the comments on YouTube are garbage anyway. So <laughs> I, I really don't really – I don't spend a lot of time reading them. So if – are you going to yeah. really get a lot of great content out of the comments on YouTube? What I would say is if if you have something that you really want to comment about, start up your own blog. You know, set up your own portal to the internet where uh, you can have a little more control over what you say. Yeah. Well, let's yeah. So why don't we talk a little bit about that uh, from a regular uh, regulation perspective? Because I think there's the point that you made is valid. I think there's some arguments that would suggest that additional regulation could be beneficial if we're tr- depending on how we view uh, public space and and um, treat these social media platforms as um, as as areas of free speech. So. I know preparing for this, uh, one of the one of the pieces I read was from Ben Thompson, who runs Strategery, uh, which uh, which I find fascinating. He, it's it's mostly based on technology, and so he's he's dissecting technology innovation companies and valuations. He wrote a piece a couple of years ago about moderation, and his point was that. The way of thinking about speech is is not so much about whether or not it should be banned or not banned at the um, let's say across every single technology and private company. He looked at it more from a, a technology stack perspective, and so his 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 point was that actors that sit below in the technology stack. So if there's software that sits on a server, and that server is you know the ISP. The, um, the the companies that are running more of the the technology layer for infrastructure need to be held closer to the legal standard for free speech because they control all the piping. 
Then as you move further up the stack and you get to things like Twitter and Facebook, these other types of um, platforms and social media platforms, he made the argument that they should be allowed to moderate because they are uh, their value is based on the community that they build. And therefore, having um, they should be allowed to say what is considered within our uh, rights in terms of service. And it was predicated on having a competition in the market that there are there are alternatives to Twitter, there are alternatives to Facebook, there are, are alternatives to uh, uh, any of these social media platforms, right? Instagram, right? What's interesting is I, I read that and I thought that's a very interesting perspective and it's a nice way of laying out uh, what how companies could look at it. And and as I read that, it was, and this was right around obviously the, the January 6th uh, uh, events and, and Trump being banned. Ben actually put out a tweet saying, I agree that uh, it was, it was right for Twitter to ban Trump. They have a, they have a duty to moderate. Now I haven't seen communication yet because what, what unfolded afterwards was not only did uh, did the the top layer platforms like Twitter and Facebook, uh, Instagram, all ban President Trump? Then what you saw is uh, additional fallout. So you saw companies like Parler being kicked off of AWS, also being kicked out of the the marketplaces on Android and uh, Apple for for their actual application, which really puts pressure on the part of the argument that says, well, there's as long as there's competition, right? His, he said this. He said, as long as there's competition in the marketplace, then this model holds holds um, holds water. And and Jack Dorsey said as much as well. He said, I when we banned Trump from, from Twitter, we didn't anticipate that all of the other platforms would do the same thing. And we didn't anticipate that uh, um, a competitor like Parler or Gab would be kicked off of AWS. Uh, and and I, there was a, a different commentary uh, from, uh, let me get the name here, from David Sachs. And we can get into sort of his perspective on how to address this this issue. But he, he pointed out that this is sort of a follow a leader type of mentality, which even though they're not actually creating a monopoly or cartel to withhold access to their platforms, it's a decentralized type of version of it because the first person that does it creates the the next person that does it and everyone just follows the leader. So you end up having the same effect. So which which almost argues that there really isn't a, a marketplace. And yes, there can be a marketplace if uh, I guess you can you can go out there and create your own website. But if 90% of communication goes through these other channels and they ban all freedom of speech that doesn't conform to their views, do we really have competition? Exactly. And that's, that's kind of the next point on how would we regulate these, um, these platforms. So this, it's not unprecedented for the U S to regulate these, uh, these types of companies. Uh, so essentially they had the same issue with the phone company, right? Um, there were cases where the phone company 
not because they wanted to restrict anyone's speech, but because of the cost of building out their infrastructure to certain low population areas, the, the phone company didn't want to offer phone service. Like, so Paul, if you live out in the middle of nowhere, you know, Verizon could come along and say, well, it's going to cost us X number of dollars to provide phone service to him. And there's no way we're going to be able to recoup that cost from the fees that he pays us. Um, so the government came along and they passed these common carrier rules, which basically says that the phone company has to provide that service to anybody who's willing to pay for it. And they do that through essentially subsidizing the service. All the people who are current phone companies, customer, phone company customers, they pay a common carrier fee, which kind of subsidizes the, uh, the cost that it, that the, uh, the utility company has to bear in order to provide the service to everyone. Uh, so now we're not talking about uh, building out an infrastructure here, but we could potentially uh, could theoretically cause uh, uh, Twitter and Facebook and the social media companies to get regulated sort of s under that same idea is that they're a common carrier, that it's a system like the phone system, right? It's a system that people, uh, we really kind of, they're becoming such an ingrained part of our life that people use them, for, depend on them so much for communication that these services, essentially, they have to allow themselves to be available to everyone. So then the question comes up is, well, if they have to make themselves be available to everyone, then what do they do about regulating for offensive content? Right. So we're right back to the discussion on what's offensive, what's not offensive. Right. Um, so if if Twitter has to let everyone on, then one way that we could address what's offensive and what's not offensive is to just come up with a clear set of rules. Uh, you know, they could be laws. You know, it's it's legal to say X, Y and Z. It is illegal to say A, B and C. And then mm -hmm. that way. If if you say X, Y, and Z, you're fine. If you say A, B, and C, right, there's no dispute. You're kicked off the platform or you're, you know, banned for some particular period of time or something like that. Um, you know, that's one way to address it. Um, the other way to address it, again, is to just tell the platform that you're not responsible for the content on the platform. And you go back to what I was saying earlier, just the users having to take responsibility for themselves um, through features like blocking and muting um, yep. to avoid offensive content. Um, you know, and I'm sure like there are some entrepreneurs out there come up with, with uh, even better ways to help people sort of, uh, you know, curate the content that they see coming across their feed. Um, yeah. And to, to put a point on that, Charles Hoskinson, who I think we discussed in our, in our last podcast on voting discuss the idea of apps within the Twitter verse, if you will, that could help with some of that moderation. And I'm not going to try and go down the, the, the path of how that would actually be done, but there's, there are ways in which it can be done. That's right now it's centralized Twitter, just picking on them. They say, we're going to come up with some standards. Then we're going to go out there and choose who the fact checkers are. Then we're going to decide the processing for actually confirming that check. And then we're going to set up a, a series of uh, ways in which we are 
validating those checks, right? And they, they, they talk about the fact that they have, um, they've hired part-time workers across the entire globe that are, that are reviewing accounts. Um, and, you know, if, if a tweet is flagged by a certain number of people, it goes into a queue, someone in that queue reviews it. And one of the challenges that they're going to have is, is just language barriers, right? So if you've got someone in a country, they speak, lang- they speak English as a second or third language. And they speak it very proficiently, but they can't understand the nuance of what is being shared through sarcasm or even terms that they're unfamiliar with because it's not part of where they learned English, right? Uh, they, they, they struggle to moderate that. So all of that is part of a centralized system. To your point, they, they could step away. Twitter could step away and say, well, we're not going to allow, we're not going to have responsibility for that. We're going to allow individuals with the features that they've already developed, which are, which are very robust for blocking. Um, we're, we're going to, we're going to, um, allow apps into that area, third parties that can add a, add an additional layer. And I, I actually thought about this years ago. I said, you know, when, when someone, let's just say Eric Weinstein, you know, someone I, I talk about frequently, he, he posts something on Twitter and he has a thousand people that respond back that are more or less sock puppets or bots. Why not just have a, a an app that sits in between and says, yeah, you know, these 400 comments that came back to you are all from accounts that were created in the last week that have no followers. Well, do I really want to pay attention to that? It's, it's, yes, it diminishes. Maybe some of those comments are very valid and they, they, you're, you're putting out an argument and they have great counter arguments, but they haven't, but, you know, if you're trying to filter out garbage, there's a way in which you could do it. Uh, and, and I think it could be better preferable to what they're doing today, but that's a decision by Twitter as a private company. Right. Um, and, um, so it's possible, but it, it clearly it's something they've chosen not to do. Right. And I know, um, I don't know if they're still doing it, but you know, Twitter has a, I guess they have a published API or something. Um, but at one point they were shutting down third-party apps or blocking out mm-hmm. third-party apps that were trying to access their the Twitter feeds so that um, yep. the only app you could use on your phone was the official Twitter app. Um, I don't know if they're still doing that or not, but I know at one time they were. Um, but yes, it's possible um, through these APIs, the application programming interface, it's, it's possible for third-party developers to write apps um, that can sit on top of or work, work in conjunction with these platforms to help you do that. Um, yeah. You know, uh, one, thing that, one thing that came to mind while you were talking, too, is when we talk about regulations, right, in... in we have this concept called regulatory capture. Okay. So what that is, is that's when an industry or a company, they, they essentially team up with government to write regulations that will benefit that industry or particular company. And we see this a lot when a company reaches a certain size and it wants to protect its market, it'll write regulations in a way that help prevent, uh, new competitors from entering the market by raising the the startup costs and by raising the compliance costs uh, for complying with the regulations. 
you know, so when we talk about, you know, regulating these companies as like common carriers or something, you always have to take that into consideration. Like I, I know Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> like in the last few years, he's, he started asking the government, please regulate us. And I'm sure he's got his army of lawyers and lobbyists sitting there already. They probably hell, have written the regulations already um, that they want to see implemented. Uh, and a right. lot of it. So you have to be careful is when you start to regulate these companies, instead of increasing competition, you can effectively limit competition. Um, so you're you're moving away from a free market to a, a, a highly regulated and controlled market. And is that something that you want to do? You know, so there's a trade off. So if we force Twitter to be open to everyone, that's great. But you may also be stifling innovation in that area so that you're going to eventually end up with an inferior product uh, than what you could have had had you just let the market be open so you know there's actually, there's always I, trade-offs to this yeah and 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 i think that's a fantastic point that many people that have a knee-jerk reaction to this to the banning of donald trump or to um, any political affiliated group needs to think about. And uh, David Sachs is another person that came up when I was reviewing this um, this topic. He is a, I believe, a, a, an investor in the Silicon Valley area. Um, he's friends with Chamath, who um, obviously is a billionaire investor and former Facebook um, employee. His point was, more about a bill of rights, a digital bill of rights. So instead of regulating these com- these companies individually, we create a, a bill of rights for the individual that must that can be applied uh, for um, across society. And actually, as, as I hadn't thought of it this way, but it's clearly it's the opposite of what you're describing, right? Because in in the bill of rights, if we can get that in in an agreeable format then the individual has protections and the company is then on the hook for making sure they, they are not infringing on those protections uh, versus when we regulate the, the companies directly and tell them exactly how to operate. To your point, that creates a moat. Then the moat just keeps on growing. Right Already they have the moat that has to do with network effects and the fact that they've already captured these audiences at a low, co- low customer acquisition cost relative to what it would be today. Uh, you know, a parlor is a great example. They can get from a million to 10 million people, maybe. You know, they're competing with a, with, um, with Twitter, which has several hundred million people, right? So we're talking orders of magnitude higher and may, maybe even more than that. Mm-hmm. Facebook has a billion people, right? Um, so <clears throat> if you, if you, if you worked on the Bill of Rights and, you know, I'm sure it's a concept he, he would need to work uh, and, and there would need to be more work on the specifics of it, but it could it could look at things like you know individuals' right to freedom of expression online, and how that can be um, how that cannot be infringed. Um, what happens? And th- this is the biggest question I think many people and critics of what happened after uh, earlier this month were were frustrated with was, well, you ban somebody, you do a you do a permanent ban. What is their recourse for for pushing back on that ban and applying to say, listen, I would like to to um, I'd like to come back to the community. Uh, this this idea of forgiveness that that some crimes 
you, you do the time, <laughs> you do the crime, you do the time, you come back and, and you can be, you can be brought back into the, the community. If there is no way to come back from that, then we start to just create a larger and larger group of people that are on the outside. And that, that just can't be healthy for society. I mean, we talk about this all, all the time with crime statistics that we have people that have the revolving door of going through prisons. And I, I, I don't know anybody who could argue that that's a, that's a net positive for society. So, uh, I think those are the types of concepts though. The idea of what is, what is the individual's right? Uh, that digital right that they have online because the, the ones that exist in our Bill of Rights today are a good template, but there's unique attributes to the digital world that need to be, um, considered. And how do we consider those? I, 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 to me, I, I like that idea. What do you think about that idea? Yeah. My first thought is how would you enforce it? Would this be a Bill of Rights that the government's responsible for enforcing? Would we have a, mm-hmm. a third party, um, like, Maybe the Electronic Frontier Foundation would review the platform and give it like a grade for how well it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it conforms to the Bill of Rights. And then, you know, then the user would be free to move on to another platform if they didn't like it. And, you know, how would, how would that enforcement mechanism work? Did he talk about that at all? Uh, I think his was perhaps more of a traditional type of government overlay. Okay. Um, but you, you know, you could you could ask the question: Is there a way in which, um, as you said, that that a, a third party, that's perhaps neutral and, and agreed upon, could have some kind of governing rights? I mean, you know, I, I think it's a very interesting question for today's age. We have we're, we're working in an uh, algorithm based world, and none of us know how those algorithms work. Um, so they they end up being black boxes and. It, is there a right to know what's in those algorithms? If there, if there, and, and maybe there isn't. I mean, I think there's, there's, there's always been an argument for, for private innovation deserves to protect what it has created. Uh, on the other hand, if, if you're being, uh, censured, uh, in, in some way or censored in some way, are, do, do you have a right to know? And, and I, I think, um, you know, I, I'm not sure how that comes from a third party versus a uh, the government. Uh, and if if it's a third party and it has no ability to fine or or actually has some teeth, if it could really do much, if if the Bill of Rights would actually mean something, yeah, um, and, yeah, and that this is where uh, the the reputation of the third party would come into play. Um, you know, so like consumer reports, right? They're not a government agency and they don't actually impose fines, but they test all these products. They give them scores. They make a recommendation. And yeah. I don't know how it is now, but at one time, like being, you know, in the consumer reports recommended was, was huge um, because it carried right. so much weight. So if an organization like the electronic frontier foundation, you know, comes to, uh, you know, you know, Scott's micro, blogging platform and says, you know, this, this platform's terrible. It, it fails on all of these aspects of the, of the online bill of rights. And you can go to their website and see that and see their review. 
and then at the same time they go to to Paul's microblogging platform. He's like, "This is great, right? He, you know, does all this wonderful stuff. You're very free, uh, and people can see that. And you can maybe take a little, you know, I'm whatever certified and stick it on your website. Um, then that would drive people who care about free speech to your site and yeah. away from mine. Um, so it, it 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 wouldn't necessarily be a a a scheme where you're, you know, imposing fines and regulating people like that. It would just be more of a seal of approval type thing. Um, mm. So that would still allow the market to operate. You would just have an independent source kind of saying, yes, this site is good because, well, this site is bad because of, because um, the thing is, is with, if, if you have a government agency and, and everyone knows I worked for the government for 10 years. My opinion on regulators is very low um, <laughs> yeah. because I was there. I mean, I saw the attitudes, but you know, again, how much does the person who is reviewing your case actually care? How much, right. you know, how hard are they going to push Twitter to be transparent and tell you why you got banned? You know, this is one of the big right. complaints now is they just say you, you violated the terms of service, but they don't give you a specific example of what you did so that you can fix it and, and not do it again. Right? You're always kind of operating in this limbo. Um, and again, if the government is is tasked with enforcing it, do we have that problem with regulatory capture? Is, mm -hmm. you know, how much input does Facebook and Twitter have into um, determining how the process works and, and determining, you know, even what the Bill of Rights is and what conforms to the Bill of Rights and what doesn't? Yeah. No, I, I, and actually, it, it actually begs another question. I mean, I, I conceptually, I'm in agreement with David Sachs that this is a great idea. When I think about the good actors, that you hear about on a routine basis, they're very few in number when it comes to free speech. Um, I've seen very many, uh, several pieces from the ACLU in the last five, seven years that shocked me. I, I recall as a, as a young kid when the ACLU defended the rights of the KKK to march, I believe it was in Indiana. And the KKK is beyond offensive, disgusting. The lawyer at the ACLU was uh, a Jewish man defending the rights of the KKK that, uh, and, and in their own words, thought that this man should probably die. Uh, but his point was that the freedom of speech could not be infringed. Um, so you, you think, oh, is the ACLU the right group? Well, they have put out in many, in recent years, many, Many stances that appear to say, well, there's, there's points where free speech should be in, infringed. And it's been, it's nowhere near the significance of, of, of KKK member. I mean, a lot of it has to do with, um, how we look at race relations, how we talk about genders and, and, and sort of these new frontiers of areas that we're exploring with language. So where do you find that group of good actors that, you know, traditionally would have been the ACLU? You could talk to them about a bill of rights. Well, who are the people of today that can help define that? Exactly. Um, I, mm. I don't know that I would, I would, I would walk back because it sounds like it's a better solution to the problem of, of just canceling people off of these platforms. I, I, to me, the case is the case made that, uh, well, there's, there's sufficient competition in the market is just not true. 
I, I, I think on its face, it just isn't true. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, I think the, the uncoordinated but effective coordination of taking platforms off of AWS and other providers suggests that there is a, uh, a follow leader mentality that is not going to go away. So, and it goes down as Ben Thompson was saying, well, you know, down, down further down the technology stack, you, sh- you have to be held to a law standard. Well, you know, perhaps, perhaps I'm, I'm just not, uh, I'm impatient. I'm expecting this to happen today. Maybe Amazon is going to be sued and, and, you know, parlor or other types of platforms will win, you know, a couple of years down the road. But that's, let's also remember who they're fighting. A billion, uh, one of the largest, if not the largest company by market cap, which has infinite dollars to fight in court. So it's, on one hand, I could say, well, no, let's just say, let's have our day in court and see how this plays out. The other hand, it's, it's the, you know, the smallest rock going against the largest planet. And um, if you really do think that the smallest rock can beat the largest planet, fantastic. It's hard to see how that happens. Right. In, in reality. Yeah. Yeah. And the the current environment, I mean, it definitely looks like it's somewhat less than a free market. Uh, I just know that in my lifetime, you know, I've seen IBM get labeled as the big evil company that was going to take over the world. And then it was Microsoft. Um, yep. You know, and then, you know, Google's gone through threats of antitrust legislation. Um, so companies could be they could appear to be big and unbeatable today. And then tomorrow, you know, a small disruptor comes along who's going to completely change the landscape. And that's what I would still hold out hope for is that, yes, um, it, it may seem a huge burden to overcome these companies today, but, you know, a new technology or a new innovation could change that. Um, yeah. And, you're right. At some point on the stack, right, we've got to have neutrality. Um, we can't have the companies that operate the backbone of the internet filtering out traffic. Um, so like, you know, Gab, Gab's running on its own servers, its own infrastructure right now, but it still depends on that backbone of the internet to, right. to people to be able to connect to it. It still depends on the DNS. Um, registrars to to convert the name gab.com into an IP address so people can can reach the site. So, um, and you know, even Tor runs across the public internet. It's just kind of a, a sort of a sandbox, I guess, um, connection through the internet. So, you're right. At some point, there does have to be um, some neutrality in the system. Um, but you know, as long as companies are free to innovate. And maybe that's a you know a discussion for another podcast is like how much innovation do we really have these days? Um, as long as companies are free to innovate, I think there's always going to be the possibility for a disruptor to enter the market, uh, and, and yeah. it could take time, right? Maybe we just need to be patient. Like, how long was the taxi industry the dominant force in a lot of cities for uh, helping people help me helping move people along? And then along comes Lyft and Uber. And all of a sudden, in less than a year, I think the taxi industry was just upended. Um, so, yeah. you know, that's that's a great example of innovation. And, you know, back to my comments about regulations, you know, if you have too many regulations, you can prevent that from happening. You know, now in the case of the ride shares, people moved after the fact to try to start regulating them. But by then, I think it was too late. Um, yeah. You know, so in the future, 
you know, it, 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 if we let Facebook and Twitter um, participate in the regulate in the process of writing the regulations, right? They may make it so that it's almost impossible for that upstart innovator to come into the market and compete effectively. Um, so we, we yeah. you always have to consider the trade-offs and sometimes yeah. we just, we, we have to have a more long-term focus. Um, and you know, and the other thing you said, uh, you know, one, one great mental model to keep in mind is when you're online is, is credibility. Like what, what kind of credibility does the person you're listening to have, you know, like you mentioned, and it was actually, I looked the case up. So it was Skokie, Illinois. It was the national socialist party of America versus village of Skokie. And that was a 1970s case. And the ACLU represented the Nazi uh, party in this case. And they won the right for the party to March uh, Mm -hmm. based on the first amendment. But you're right. Like the ACLU's, their credibility has has they've largely lost their credibility in these types of cases um, because they they have started not only steering away from the cases but actually taking the side of the government in some of these cases. Um, so you need another you would need another organization to come up um, that has a lot of credibility that you know is going to fight for your rights. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, and, and maybe this is the downside of a free market. I don't know. It's that things are always in flux, but, and there's going to be times where what you want to see in the market is not going to be readily available, you know, but then the, the flip side is that hopefully there will be times where what you want to see is, is the dominant force in the market. Yeah, no, I, I so it's a very valid point and it is. I think always impactful to think about the incentive structures that you're going to create, the second order impacts, third and fourth uh, order impacts that you're going to create. There's a, there's a cost to running Twitter uh, just in terms of actual operational expense. And there's a cost to creating the features and capabilities. And if you create the burden that makes it too difficult for private enterprise to do it and you expect the public uh, infrastructure to create it, you're going to be sorely frustrated with with the output. Yeah. That's just not what government is good at and they never will be. Um, just the incentive structures, I think, have proven that time and time again that commercial uh, applications come from the private sector. Right, right. Um and you can do it for a period. I mean, I think what we've seen in China is an amazing uh, approach, even though I disagree with it, with what they've been able to accomplish. But if you peel back the layers, you find that it's not um, – it's built on a house of cards. So capital formation that is seeking uh, actual value through innovation is – what we've, I think, identified as a society is the number one way in which you can progress on the technological frontier, um, which gets back to the point, Scott, that you're making is you, if you're impatient and you move quickly, you can kill that. Um, and and so we need to be aware of that. And I, and I think that's a very valid point when people are calling for – I myself have thought about it, this idea that, that – Platforms should can't get an exemption for being publishers and being platforms. But I will say, having read through some of these other ideas, uh, the Bill of Rights idea, the utility kind of model, and also the moderation model, it has given me pause to think about 
are, are there better ways that we can approach this problem? Um, that we can uh, not have a highly toxic environment uh, where everyone's offended all the time, uh, but also not just be canceling and censoring people such that you, you just have a creation of echo chambers um, or, or the fact that people are just excluded entirely, uh, which I think would defeat the purpose of having these social media platforms. Exactly. So, um, and, you know, you brought up a good point as we didn't really touch on it one much, but, uh, or at all, but, you know, I, th- I threw a quick note in our episode notes here. Um, so I'm just going to bring this up real quick. We don't really need to discuss it, but, you know, to me, one of the bedrock found or one of the bedrock principles of the U S that separates us from these tyrannical governments that we, you know, say that we hate is due process and innocent mm-hmm. until proven guilty. Um, but what we're seeing in the censorship realm is lack of due process. Like we mentioned before, there's, there's, little if any transparency from the platforms about why people are getting banned um, you're seeing just people getting banned based off of you know complaints people are complaining and that's resulting in the banning of accounts and, and people from these platforms without the person ever being allowed to present their case um, they're essentially not having their day in court um, so you know is that a direction we want to go in you know do we want to have mm-hmm. such a one-sided process um to where all all paul has to do is complain about one of my tweets and accuse me of being a neo-nazi and effectively get me censored off of twitter um without my even really knowing exactly what i said or what i did or uh without my having the opportunity to respond or appeal the decision um, that's that's a dangerous path to be on, and it, it may seem like a small thing now, but you know it, it 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 could grow. Like this could turn into a situation where it almost effectively becomes, if you're a conservative or depending on who's in power and who's kind of controlling the the, the censorship at the time, right? It could become a, a situation where you're effectively cut off from the rest of the world or a large part of the rest of the world just based off of your political views or based off of who you voted for. Uh, so, you know, it's something a slippery slope argument, but you know, it's something that we definitely have to keep in mind. Yeah. And, and I, I want to bring this up. I actually think the risk is, is rather high. And, and I want to to anybody who's listening to this, that thinks it's a conservative versus liberal uh, progressive paradigm that we're tracking it, it, it goes far beyond that and and the example I'll give is uh, last year we saw a, an amazing suppression of discussion around different hypothesis for why COVID is growing uh, moving at, at specific rates its origins how to treat it the, the medicine or, or the, the approach that we should be taking uh, for lockdowns. And there were certain ideas that were considered outside the Overton window. Uh, one of them being that the lag, the lab leak hypothesis that the origin of COVID was a lab in Wuhan versus a wet market. People that tried to talk about this um, 
there were many people calling for them to be censored, for those, those communications to be taken down. And it's only recently, in the last week or so, that some papers have published the idea that this may be a legitimate hypothesis. So you are actually restricting speech about an idea that deserved, that had merit. And it's, to me, that's not a left or right weenie, uh, left or right type of conversation. It's more of a scientific approach versus dogma. And if you're okay with censoring speech because you think, well, this is beyond the pale, ask yourself, when is it going to hit where our, our best approach, the scientific method is being neutered at the altar of dogma uh, in the, in, and all under the guise of safety and protection, which is usually where a lot of the speech uh, activism comes from trying to protect people. So uh, we should be aware and we need to realize that it is a slippery slope and we're already seeing the, the beginnings of it and we don't want it to get worse. This isn't something that we should allow to continue to roll down its own path. Um, in the sense that maybe maybe we're patient enough to realize that a free market um, solution can come, but we also need to be vigilant and understand that uh, if if we're seeing more signals going in the wrong direction, we're going to have to be more aggressive in, in how we approach it. Yeah. That's that's my two cents. Yeah, ex- exactly. And you know, timing is a huge deal. Um, you know what. How much further along the the COVID timeline could we be now if we allowed people to openly have these discussions earlier in the process? You know, what would we know now? I don't know, but it could be something. Um, And, you know, and that makes me think of the hydroxychloroquine. You know, if if we allowed people Mm -hmm. to have the discussions on hydroxychloroquine. You know, would would we have saved any lives because people would have known more about it and been willing to take it as a as a treatment? You know, I don't know. It's possible. Um, yeah. And, you know, and again, I don't want to bring politics back into it, but th- this does have an effect. Like there was a poll. Um, I'll, I'll try to find it and put it in the show notes, but it was essentially showed that had more people known about the Hunter Biden laptop story that Trump very well could have won the election, but because of suppression of that story, um, uh, more people voted for Biden than would have, would have, would not have if they had known about the story. Um, you know, and again, it's a poll, you know, we, there's problems just endemic with polls, uh, but it's, it's some sort of an indication that, um, the, the media's attempts to restrict this story may have had an impact on the election. Uh, I'm not saying it did or didn't. I'm just saying that it's the possibility, the possibilities out there. So we've mentioned before, right? Democracies thrive when everyone has the information that they need to make an informed decision. So do we really want people on these platforms who we don't know, we've never met them. We don't know what their ethics are. Do we want them determining what we can see in here or do mm-hmm. we want to be left to make that decision on our own? Yeah. Yeah. Nope. That's the question. So, well, Scott, I think we, we've, we've hashed this out pretty well. Are there any other parts of the topic you think we, we need to cover? 
No, I think, uh, you know, I think we brought up a lot of good ideas. We, we talked about first principles. Um, you know, we talked about some, the trade-offs. Um, so I think we've given people a lot to think about. And as usual, we haven't actually answered the question, <laughs> probably just muddied the waters more, but, you know, yeah. hopefully it's a, it's a starting point for people to, uh, you know, start thinking about this and taking it seriously. Absolutely. And, and I think if, if there's one takeaway, I would hope someone, a listener would have is that, uh, a knee jerk reaction to a complex issue is something to avoid. And, and, and certainly this is a complex issue. I think, uh, we could have easily just dogged on the social media platforms the entire time claiming how they're just censoring people left and right. And I think in, in some ways we gave them a fair shake in terms of talking about the complexity that they have to deal with. Just starting with the first principle of that speech is complex. What they have to do is complex. And if you're going to have to moderate. So, um, yeah. So take, take these ideas. Let us know what you think. Let us know in the comments, uh, where, what do you think we're missing part of the, the argument or the, the details that need to uh, uh, be considered? And uh, until then, stay sharp and keep on uh, seeking signal in, in the world of noise. And uh, we'll be with you real soon. Take care.